1: produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy Middleton. Hi and welcome to Women on the Line. This week we have a very special recording from the launch of Archer Magazine's fifth issue. Uh, Archer is a print publication based in Melbourne and sold around the world which captures diverse attitudes to sexuality, gender and identity. As part of their launch event this month... Simona Castricum and Rochelle Siamenovich read excerpts from their articles in the new edition of Archer and then answered a couple of questions about their work. Rochelle Siamenovich writes about her upbringing as a Seventh-day Adventist and how those experiences impact and developed her current sexual identity, which is one of non-monogamy, a long-term partner, children, and an extremely open approach to discussing sex. Simona Castricum writes about the changes in desire and desirability she's experienced during gender transition and the challenges she faces in finding her place in the community. Simona is also a really talented performer and musician, and so I'll play one of her tracks a little later in the show. The audio you're about to hear is supplied courtesy of Archer magazine. Uh, The launch was held in December at Hairs and Hyenas Bookstore in Fitzroy, Melbourne. And you can log on to archimagazine.com.au to hear the full audio and to find out more about the publication. The event is hosted by myself, Amy Middleton, and it also featured a reading from Dion Kagan. First up, a little bit about Rochelle. Uh, Rochelle Siamenovich is a film critic, journalist, editor and columnist. She has a PhD in Australian cinema and was formerly editor at the Australian Film Institute and film editor for The Big Issue. Uh, Rochelle's work has been published in The Age, Kill Your Darlings, Screen Hub and SBS Movies. And her first book, Fallen, a memoir about sex, religion and marrying too young, is out now. Stay tuned now for Rochelle's reading, uh, followed by a short Q&A. And thanks for joining me for Women on the Line. Um, All right, I might invite Rochelle up to read uh, a piece. Please make her feel welcome.
0: My piece is called A Cross to Bear. Mum, what are butt plugs for? My 12 year old son asks at the dinner table. I yelp at the question before admitting I'm curious myself. Some of those things are huge, says my 20 year old stepdaughter, helping herself to another serving of Caesar salad and recounting her recent excursion to a sex toy shop just to satisfy her curiosity. Later, as I clear the plates, we talk about how polyamory might or mightn't work, the historical richness of the word cunt and the dangers of trying to reclaim it in mixed company and what it's like to lose your virginity. Don't rush into anything, my stepdaughter advises her younger brother. I hope you don't have to wait as long as I did, their father booms. It certainly wasn't by choice. It's a lot for kids to take in between main course and dessert. But it's not unusual in our house to talk about sex. Maybe we talk about it too much. There are some parents who think we do. In mainstream Australian society, it's still considered radical to tell your youngsters that sex and pleasure are healthy and good for you. But I'm proud of the openness in our family. It's a deliberate approach I've adopted as a reaction against my evangelical Christian upbringing. As a Seventh-day Adventist, I grew up believing that if a penis penetrated my vagina, this had eternal significance. Sex would be something I did with my husband on our wedding night, and once this had happened, we would be one flesh in God's eyes. If I had sex before I got married, I believed I'd be one flesh with anyone I did it with, tied to them spiritually for life. These days, I identify as a polyamorous atheist. But I have to admit that my seriousness about sex, my insistence on talking about it, writing about it, and asserting its centrality in human experience, is another way of living out the beliefs I was raised with as a child. That body and soul are deeply, inextricably connected and that sex has a spiritual dimension. I was raised to believe that sex outside of marriage was a terrible sin. I knew the Bible's words for these sins, fornication and adultery. These concepts gave me a perverse thrill because they were sexy sins. And even as a very young child, I was fascinated with sex. But their gravity also terrified me. I knew that masturbation was wrong. And yet I loved the feeling of fingers on my skin when I was alone. The wages of sin were death, and Jesus Christ had died horrifically to pay for such sins. My father, a minister and a missionary, preached this from the pulpit every Sabbath, wiping sweat from his forehead with a folded handkerchief. Listening from the congregation, I vowed to be good. But as many a saint has complained throughout history, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak.
1: Thanks for that reading, Michelle. I'm just going to ask you a couple questions, interrogate the excerpt a little bit. Um, So you say that you identify as a polyamorous atheist these days. Um, Pretty much the only thing I could think of that polyamory and Christianity have in common um, was this sense of community and the strength of that community and the support it can offer, I assume, its members. Can you talk us through any similarities or differences you can identify between
0: those two communities? Well, I should say that I identify as a polyamorous atheist and the polyamorous bit is probably a recent um, sort of development. I'm still in the process of owning that. Um, There is definitely a polyamorous community um, here in Melbourne and um, I've sort of made connections with that a little bit and I know that the head of Polyvic, um Anne Hunter, is a relationship coach and she certainly helped me and my family through the transition that we've been through. But um, as far as being similar to religious communities, I think the thing about being polyamorous is that you get to choose the shape and nature of your relationship and it's all about what you want and how you want to define that. Whereas... When you're in a religious community, it's about an external set of rules and um, doctrines. And as far as I can tell, um, polyamory, the, the, the central ten of it, tenet of it is that it's consensual and mm. it's, it's the honesty is an important part of it. So, so um, that's one rule that kind of
1: gets um, spoken of in the poly community, this idea that everything happens with consent?
0: Yeah, and even with that, there is some kind of... Um, discussion about how, how far that goes. And, mm. yeah. So uh, you
1: mentioned that you're one of the more liberal parents in your circles when it comes to talking to your kids about sex. Um, when, when and why did you make the decision um, to, be, to have full disclosure around that topic? And how young were your kids when that happened?
0: I think I've always been really open about sex and I've always felt that... Why are we so embarrassed about it, and why is there this shame? And even with my religious upbringing, I've got to say my mother, bless her, was was really um, kind of open, more open than a lot of mothers. So I was determined, and, and my my son's father was also, also determined to be really open and to destigmatize it and to make it as much just a part of life and conversation. So that when a lot of parents talk about, oh. I'd, you know, I don't want to have to talk about periods with my daughter or you know, wet dreams with my son. It's because they're turning 12. I'm like, well it's getting late in the piece to be starting to stress about that. <laughs> Should have thought of that earlier. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they were quite young when you made that decision.
0: Yeah, I think it's just a natural kind of outflowing of who you are so that, you know, I think children are really curious and From the moment they want to name bits and pieces of their body, they want to know about how babies are made, they see animals mating. Um, There's so many opportunities to just integrate it into life so that it's it's woven into the fabric rather than this kind of thing that happens in the dark in a corner that we're all a bit scared of talking about. Yeah,
1: my sister has a, a
0: baby and she
1: says that around her I have to use anatomically correct terms. So I'm not allowed to say JJ anymore, <laughs> which I resent. <laughs> um, so what sort of sex education do you think your kids get outside of the home? Like, is it is it different out there? What's the world like compared to full disclosure?
0: Well, I know at school that they have a program... Um the grade fives and sixes particularly and they have an information night where the parents can go along and and find out what their kids are going to learn about um, and so that the parents can feel comfortable with what the children are going to be taught but I'm a really free range parent I believe in just (laughs) dropping my kid off at school and picking him up so I don't know You didn't go
1: (laughs) You didn't go to the info night did he come does he come home with questions with confusion around anything or he makes
0: fun of it he thinks they're all really quite um i th- i think he he already knows it he knows everything well he doesn 't know everything i mean um, <laughs> but he i think he, does. he yeah, yeah. He, he's nearly thirteen and um i i do think one thing that he, I thought this was implicit in the way that I'd brought him up but something that I've had to be really specific with him about is the idea that sex happens for pleasure and for fun because, um, like, perhaps this is too much information but he accidentally walked in on me and my, his father and he was traumatised. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, like, we love each other. This is just... I'm sorry you had to see that but really,
1: get over it. <laughs>
0: And he said, but you're not trying to make a baby, so what are you doing it for? And I thought, well, you obviously have... There's something that we've missed out in the education process here.
1: (laughs) That was Rochelle Siamenovich reading her piece from Archer Magazine's fifth issue. And Rochelle's novel, Fallen, a memoir about sex, religion and marrying too young, is out now through Affirm Press. Following on from Rochelle, we have Simona Castricum. Simona is a singer songwriter, DJ, producer, and transgender femme from Melbourne. An architecture graduate from RMIT University, Simona works in graphic architecture and teaches architectural practice at the University of Melbourne. Her writing has previously featured in Thump and Vice.
2: Yes. just adjust this. Um, okay. Eroticism is a privilege I don't have access to right now. I haven't for quite a while, not since I finally decided to transition about three years ago. But it's something that I often think about. I sit in corners, doorways, and in my bed obsessing over what eroticism Or desirability could be what it should be, what it will never be, what it's cost me and what it's gonna cost me and whether anyone cares. Is desirability, fuckability, a privilege? Babe privilege is something I wish I had because sadly desirability informs my self-esteem. Initially I felt an empowering release from eroticism upon transition. It freed my mind and enabled me to connect with myself. For a while desirability became insignificant and I found uh, a new, quieter headspace in which to live. My sexual energy transformed from a masculine erotic erotic force to a new feminine experience, where eroticism was more passive and manageable. I felt a control over my mind and my body that I had not experienced before, and a sense of calm that allowed me to present on levels, uh, to be present on levels other than sexual desire. But when one burden of eroticism was lifted, it was soon replaced by another that of undesirability as a transgendered woman. I knew that transitioning would change my preconceived notions of desirability. Transition meant the end of cisgender, of cis passing privilege and I knew my change in gender presentation would take me out of mainstream desirability. People who had considered me attractive as a cis male would no longer find my trans feminine identity desirable although it was easy to let go of the security and boredom of heteronormative serial monogamy. (laughs) It was hard letting go of attracting regular partners. This had been replaced with a bleak reality of loneliness and rejection. Meanwhile, love is just a painful muscle memory, an idea found only in my imagination. My trans experience is one of pretty low desirability, paired with the tendency to underestimate the value of myself and overestimate the worth of everybody else. It's not a great outcome for my self-esteem. Eroticism has become a shit sandwich and hardly a pleasure at all. I wouldn't say the traffic on my online dating profiles is encouraging either, so I don't translate very well online either. But I'm a total babe in person, as you can see. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, however, while I idealise people through crushes just like anybody else, flirtation, flirtatious navigation at parties or clubs seems like a waste of time. The queer scene is often dictated by desirability. Friendship groups and social capital are determined by who's fucking or dating. It's a small world here in Melbourne, so when a relationship ends, you either gain a million friends or you get stuck at home alone. It's a game of snakes and ladders. Hierarchies are created and cliques are established and those become impenetrable walls for people on the fringe of desirability. As a middle-aged trans woman in an AFAB-centric mass of predominantly 20-something queers who are dating each other, I find myself on that fringe. How am I going for time? (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) I just read the bit that I was really worried about anyway. Although on one hand, I'm wishing to be part of the action, I'm reluctant even to participate. Between my gender dysphoria, which ensures that any confidence in my body is shot, and my fear of rejection based upon my inability to pass, it can become too much at times. Truth is, I like looking trans, it's who I am, and I don't care if I pass to, to anybody. I pass to myself and that's all that matters and I want to be desired as I am, not what somebody wants me to be. When I first came out in the early 90s, visibility of trans and gender nonconforming people did not exist in the queer community, let alone in mainstream culture. A psychiatrist told me I would find it impossible to find a partner who would accept me as a trans woman. It was a mean-spirited reinforcement of a negative stigma associated with anybody who exists outside the gender binary. It was also bullshit. <laughs> we are not unlovable. We are desired, but we live in a society that doesn't encourage people to to desire trans bodies. The fear of being unlovable has stuck in my mind ever since. My relationships seem less secure. Since my transition, I've been divorced, dumped and replaced by cisgender women with younger, better-looking AFAB babes with significantly less problems than I have. Is it my junk? Is it my mental illness written all over my face? Is it that you think I can't fuck? Those experiences make me feel like I have no long-term desirability. I also had a 42-year-old queer woman tell me that most queer women and lesbians wouldn't want to sleep with me because of my junk and because I'm trans. And This made me feel that most people my own age probably wouldn't see me as desirable, let alone adequately respect trans culture. Today it's, it's heartening to see a new generation of queer social politics in which trans women are being desired, I'm lucky to be part of that, but dating people 15 to 20 years younger than me has its issues, longevity, experience, and expectations. In its current state, my body is wrong to me. It could be right one day, but I can't change it as easily as I would like to. I was recently denied gender surgery because I was deemed too mentally unstable. My body will now be wrong for another 12 months 12 months of body dysphoria and distance from desirability. It feels like a coercive asexualisation opposed on me by transition and mental illness diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. How could I maintain a healthy sexual relationship with anybody while all this is inside my head? It feels impossible and it's cost cost me my ability to be present in some of my relationships. It's important to remember that transition is completely different for everybody It can bring a whole new definition of sexuality that takes time to adjust to and understand. But my fears and ideas of romance and relationships remain the same. My search for love remains paramount. I nearly said paranoid. (laughs) (laughs) I probably should have said paranoid. (laughs) But perhaps this is just a pseudo-intellectual way of saying that nobody I'm attracted to actually wants to fuck me. And it feels like crap. But my conditioning and paranoia has meant that I'm guilty of focusing only on the sum of my negative experiences, rather than valuing the people who do desire me. I focus, I focus on the ones that haven't. And part of gender transition is accepting that I am desirable. Desirability is not equal. Eroticism is not something that everybody feels access to. And raising the point creates awareness of... Create, sorry, raising this point creates awareness around one's experience of what it's like to exist on the margins it also encourages discussion around how we might include people on the fringe or how we might consider the silence the invisibility or at times the burden of eroticism
1: What an amazing piece and such an important uh, message in that piece. Um, I've had a lot of readers come up to me and say that um, they related to it so deeply, even though it's obviously such a unique perspective that you have, Um, which leads me to... Well, I should mention actually that everything we talk about is personal experience on this stage and doesn't represent any one identity or community or group. what is desirability to you is it universal is it personal mix
2: of the both um i think the experience of it i think is 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 universal but i think the reasons why it happened are, are very specific to the individual and i think that they're all very relative um you know, certainly like you know um my experiences in desirability and undesirability desirability have completely changed across the board so i mean there's you know, there's a... I guess there's a sexual confidence that I had about, you know, ten years ago, four years ago, that I just don't have anymore. Um, because I don't really know kind of where I do fit in and um, I guess my, my instincts as to, you know... Um, yeah, my, my... I don't know. I'm just completely getting used to com- to completely different instincts. So, so when you're sort of... Um, i don 't know when you 're at a party and you 're considering all of that stuff like you 're not really putting out a good vibe <laughs> so i wouldn't say I've been putting out a great vibe but um you know and and i think that's you know i think i think the confidence that you have is 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 everything so um I, but I think that the the difference i guess for me is that there's this sort of there 's this critical mass of of people who i i, I there were a whole lot of people who, like, when, when, I, when I separated from my wife about three or four years ago, it was like, there were people that was like, oh, yeah, now I can date that person, now I can date that person. But they were like, no, I don't want to date you because I'm not into trans women, or I don't want to date you because I'm heterosexual or something like that. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, oh okay, right, yeah, cool. But, like, we used to hit it off really well at the club. You know, we nearly pashed on the dance floor about 10 years ago. You know, can't we just give that a crack? It's like, no. Right. So, you know.
1: So a lot of what's changed is actually outside perspectives rather than your own internal feelings?
2: Um, well, I think the first year of of confronting that, of of I guess what my instincts were, that that, that was no longer going to really kind of work, and, and I really had to um, rethink... I guess who I was attracted to as well, Mm -hmm. and that really had to change because I guess if, um, yeah, look, things just really changed. I'm still just trying to find my feet in it to be perfectly honest. And and this article is probably the first step. Oh, that's Um, good. (laughs) So yeah, it's happening live. (laughs) You
1: saw it here first. I'm an
2: experiment.
1: Oh no! Don't say it like that. Can you, so during the editing process you and I talked a lot about the queer scene um, in Melbourne or in Australia um, and its many misgivings um, and I saw a few people nodding in the crowd when you were talking about it during your excerpt. Um, All cliques are sort of hard to access for a lot of us um, and can be hierarchical and um, can be a problem for a lot of us. Can you identify some of the challenges you've faced trying to, as you put it, fit in, in Melbourne? Um,
2: well, I, I, I don't know. I was kind of... I guess I, like, I didn't really have any confidence in my own sexuality or in my own sexual... You know, I, I didn't think that I was attractive. I didn't think that I was desirable, um, even though when I walked out the door and looked at myself in the mirror, I thought I looked great. But I was just kind of like, I just... You know, I, I don't know. I just I didn't really know how to navigate. You know, I, I was I would literally like jumped out of like an eleven year marriage, you know, and 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 I'm um, this sort of you know then I was like a sort of 30 or eight, 30, 38 year old trans woman, um, with pretty much no peer group, um, in in the, in their sort of thirties. I mean, because I'm 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 a musician and a DJ. I kind of hang out in nightclubs, and everyone's in their twenties. So, um, I immediately kind of just thought, oh, like, I'm just like too old. But then everyone sort of said, look, oh, your skin's amazing. And no, I can't believe you're 40. Like, you actually look 27. So all of a sudden I was like, oh, cool. This could work, you know. And so I just started to kind of go, go, I think, okay, well, yeah, maybe, you know, it's, it's cool. I can, I can sort of date people in their 20s. Um, so that was kind of good, like, to come out, like, to start off with. That was okay for me. But, um, yeah, I just, um, I, w- I would stand at parties and just be kind of like, I just don't think I can-, can participate in any of this because I just, you know, I don't know if anyone really wants me. Right. Okay. Like, no one's coming up to me, but, you know, um, it Do never really happened? happens that way anyway, does it? You know, like... Yeah, I can't yeah. remember now. <laughs> Lucky <laughs> you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess, like, when I wrote this piece, it was like... I was just really focusing on probably like the first you know, sort of two or three years of just how shit that was feeling for me. You has know, it the, improved then? Oh, yes, it, yes, it has.
1: Oh, good.
2: There is a, there is a happy end to the story, well, you know, happy, you know, yeah, happy Middle. next chapter. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't say it's an end, but yeah. So um, I'm just like focusing on the, you know, the good things, I guess. And, and rather than focusing on the sum of all the bad experiences, which I'm incredibly good at, <laughs> um... Uh, I'm focusing on some happy things. Yeah.
1: All right. You can be cagey about them if you like. You don't need to know about them. All right. Thank you, Simona. (laughs) That was musician and writer Simona Castricum speaking about her experiences with gender transition and desirability. And you can read Simona's full piece in the current edition of Archer Magazine, which is out now in bookstores and newsagents and also online through their website at archermagazine.com.au. Women on the Line is Community Radio's national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women at 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Latigra. Women on the Line can be downloaded from our website, womenontheline.org.au or download the podcast at 3cr.org.au slash podcast. I'm Amy Middleton. Tune in next time for another edition of Women on the Line.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.